0: You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. Featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood Redefined. From Los Angeles, California. Presented by Maria Menunos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood Redefined. You're listening to Black And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Justice is Served. I am your host, Mari Fagel. My co-host, Ebony Williams, is out of town in New York this week. But lucky for me, I have a special guest to join me in studio for an exclusive interview Uh, California appellate justice Eileen Moore, who wrote this fascinating book called Race Results, Hollywood Versus the Supreme Court, 10 Decades of Racial Decisions and Film. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: (laughs) Now... In reading through this book, I thought it was really interesting why you were motivated in the first place to really do a side by side comparison through the decades of how Hollywood and the Supreme Court, two of America's biggest institutions, really treated race and racial issues, racial discrimination, racial integration, uh, throughout the decades. And you found a result that I found surprising that the Supreme Court, which is usually a little bit slower and uh, slow to change its views, was actually more progressive than Hollywood in its treatment of African Americans. Were you surprised by that result?
2: Well, you gave away my ending, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not an Ag- Agatha Christie novel here. Well, there, I was surprised by the result. I, I started out thinking that. Uh, And most of the last century, the Supreme Court was nine old white men, and I figured that they were going to be hidden away in their ivory tower. They'd be behind the times. And and by the way, the reason that I did get interested in this and write it is because I, as an appellate justice, uh, along with, well, there were 30 of us that got to uh, get our master's degree at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and i found myself studying constitutional law in a luxurious kind of a state of mind that is uh without having to worry about uh paying for law school getting a job passing the bar exam or anything like that and it was 2004 and the it was the 50th anniversary of brown versus board of education the constitutional law professor was talking about the times, and I found myself thinking that I was a little girl at the time, and my parents thinking about the neighborhood, and we were not quite as poor as church mice, but almost, and there were no blacks anywhere to be found. And uh, of course, we were never allowed to use the N word, that would have been a vulgarity. But I found myself wondering how good, decent people like my parents, probably your grandparents, and a just about everybody's parents and grandparents, never got involved, never thought about it, I don't think, uh, about the whole segregation issue. And I thought, what messages were they getting? Was it from the law? Was it from popular culture? And that led me to this comparison between the United States Supreme Court and Hollywood movies.
1: You know, when you put it that way, it is interesting— why weren't people marching in the streets until the '60s? Why didn't a Mar- Martin Luther King come around and really rally the nation until the '60s? What was going on in those decades beforehand that, like you said, you know, you lived in an all-white neighborhood? Uh, so, obviously, you mentioned 1954—that is the landmark decision of Brown versus Board of Education, where they decided to end racial segregation. In schools, can you tell me about the landscape in movies at that time in the fifties? Because I, I, I want to read an interesting quote from uh, Brown versus Board of Education in. Um, in that case, the justice writes today. Many blacks have achieved outstanding success in the arts and sciences, as well as in the business and professional worlds, and that was one of the reasons for these de- decisions to integrate schools. But you found was were movies like that? What was the portrayal of African Americans in movies in the fifties?
2: Now, see that that was the nine old white men saying that. Mm-hmm. But in the movies where you would expect in Hollywood that you would find these liberal, progressive, free-thinking, equality types. But in fact, even though the nine justices talked about how successful blacks have been in American society in 1954, the kinds of movies we had at the time were Rebel Without a Cause, where there was one – Black person in it. It was a ineffectual babysitter, housekeeper, and every word she spoke in that movie. Every time she spoke, no, but everybody ignored her. There was uh, the Lost Weekend, where um, the only uh, black person was a the white protagonist was a alcoholic and a thief, but the only black actor was sh- shining his shoes in the in the men- and handing him a towel in the men's restroom. Uh, what other what were the other movies oh uh uh what was that one with uh, Jimmy Stewart where he had the broken leg
1: uh uh rebel without a cause was the one that stood out to me since i've i've seen that one <laughs> uh
2: the one with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly i can't think of the name of it at the at the at the moment but it took place in new york city there's 500,000 blacks in real life new york city at the time uh in the background it was all shot in an apartment house and the background is um, eighth avenue and people are walking by there's not one black in that movie however on the f- when grace kelly's in Pearl, and there's it looks as though she's going to be in trouble
1: rear window thank you to our <laughs> <Thank> you. producer <laughs> Stephen. Uh, rear window is the movie. rear
2: window uh the jimmy stewart character calls his friend the detective and and there's a voice on the phone and it's a Uh, uneducated, black dialect, woman babysitter on the phone. And I think it was used, there were no blacks in the movie, but I think that this voice was used to show, uh uh-oh, she's in real trouble. There's going to be no help help forthcoming here.
1: So it was interesting to me that disparity when the court recognizes that there are or that there should be successful, educated African-Americans, yet the movies are still portraying them, like you said, babysitters, dock workers, uh, uneducated. And I, I wanted to know why. Why was Hollywood kind of it's a negative portrayal of African-Americans and why did they have this portrayal? So I want to ask you about this theory that you talk about in the book, because I'd never heard of it before. You talk about how black bashing was profitable because a lot of white Americans with the advent of television and moving out to the suburbs, they weren't going to the movie theaters anymore as much. So to attract white viewers back to the theaters your theory is that uh, it was profitable to kind of sh- play to white biases and black bashing. Can you can you tell me more about that?
2: I can, but your uh, your question is mixing up the decades. Okay, and, and I'm going to go back to the 40s and to Hitler. I mean, we learned as a country, as a world, we learned a lot about democracy and what happens when you take a people and try to. Uh, uh, well, kill them off, really, uh, and uh, separate them, treat them unfairly. And I think that a great democratic spirit started here in the United States after World War II. And I do think that Hollywood started to uh, take up that spirit. And there were some movies. This is the only time, by the way, that I will uh, give Hollywood a break and stick up for them a little bit. But I do think that they tried to do the right thing. There were some movies post-World War II, um, The Best Years of Our Lives, that one where the soldiers come home after World mm-hmm. War II and they try to get back into society. Uh, there was a, That was the first movie, by the way. I think it was 1946. It may have been 45, but it was right there, uh, where there was not there there was a black there were blacks in the movie and they were not in a master servant relationship or a employer employee relationship they there were no speaking parts it was just a black serviceman and his family shopping in a drugstore, uh, grocery store, mingling among the white customers. There was no attention paid to them at all, but it was the first natural, normal treatment of blacks that I had seen. Another post-World War II movie was um, Gentleman's Agreement. Now, that was mostly about anti-Semitism, but there were several statements throughout that which uh, damned bigotry against Mm -hmm. blacks. However, before I give that movie too many kudos, it takes place in a huge uh, office building in New York City, and there's lots of street scenes in it, but you're not going to find one black actor uh, either in the foreground or the background of that movie. Another movie, and the first movie that I saw that uh, uh, had blacks and whites speaking to each other, it was not inside, it was outside, but they were speaking to each other just naturally and normally, and it was a streetcar named Desire. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Hollywood probably might have, i probably might have sounds, uh, well, I'm not sure, but I think that there's a chance that Hollywood might have taken the high road rather than the low road that they took had it not been for the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Mm -hmm. And I think that scared the bejesus out of the people who ran Hollywood. The um, it was the time of McCarthyism, and this House Committee, this UAC, is what they they mm. called it. It was uh, prosecuting uh, Hollywood actors for not for their communist ways and for not doing the typical uh, American thing. That. Uh, kind of fear went through, and I think probably by about 1960, things started to change. That is, the, the American people had beat back these extremists, and uh, what else happened? In the, uh, the the country was being exposed. Our racial policies were being exposed, and we were being embarrassed worldwide, of uh, one thing that happened is, in 1961, the newly appointed ambassador from Chad, Malik Sow, it's either So or Sal came to present his credentials to President Kennedy, and uh, he stopped for breakfast a few miles outside Washington, and they refused to serve him. Well, that there was an international. Uh, Furor over that. And they the press interviewed the waitress, and she said, Well, he looked like a regular run of the mill N word to me. I'm not going to repeat the word. I couldn't tell he was an ambassador. So that kind of thing was embarrassing the United States.
1: And and that kind of thing was also portrayed in movies as well because you talk about how in the film In the Heat of the Night, um, a black man had no motels available to him. When he went to a diner, he wasn't able to be served. So those discriminatory actions were also being portrayed on film as they were in real life.
2: So I continue to give Hollywood a pat in the back and it will stop at the end of the 60s. But they did a good job, Hollywood did, in the 1960s. It's almost as if there was a synchronization between U.S. Supreme Court cases and Hollywood movies. It was almost as though they were in tandem.
1: Yeah, because you talk about how in the 60s, this was after Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court really moves towards um, integration, not just in schools, but in motels, in diners, uh, in neighborhoods, uh, working towards getting integration in schools to be successful. Um, And the 60s within the heat of the night and also To Kill a Mockingbird showing a poor black man who really had ineffective counsel. You talk about how that really set the stage for Gideon versus Wainwright, the right to effective counsel in 1963. So you talk about how they are in tandem, but then tell me what happens and why Hollywood starts to fall out of sync as the Supreme Court kind of goes further and further towards racial integration in its decisions. What's going on with Hollywood?
2: What happened is the uh, America picked up and moved to the suburbs, and uh, with the suburbs, there's all the suburban kinds of activities and there's television. So Hollywood and as a result of that the their box office sales plummeted and hollywood had to do something to get people off their sofas and back into the movie theaters now you have to set this uh time in perspective this is the time of it's just post the uh 1964 civil rights act just po- so we have marching in the streets by uh four by and four blacks it's just passed the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It's uh, we're in Vietnam, and uh, people are waiting for their numbers to get called. For the, for the boys are waiting for their numbers to get called for the draft, and the whole the whole country is upset. We had a complete change of our immigration policies in 1965. Congress changed them, so the whole Eastern world was opened up to the United States. So Americans were not looking the same as they had looked. And there was, as during any period of change, there was a lot of of unrest. So Hollywood was trying to, in my opinion, tap into the biases and prejudices of your ordinary Americans to vindicate their feelings of hostility. And I think what they did was they made blacks look like uh, gangsters and lowlifes and in comparison to how wonderful whites were, in order to make whites feel superior.
1: And so was this black bashing, was it profitable? Did it work for Hollywood?
2: Well, they uh, their receipts increased tremendously. I can't give you numbers, but they did increase, and they kept on with that uh, format. As, as the racial... Uh, landscape changed more and more in America. By the time we got to the 70s, we had busing, we had school integration taking place on a serious way. We finally had the implementation of um, Shelley versus Kramer, which were the restrictive covenant cases. That is, people used to and actually if you find deeds every so often that still have it they would have actually written in the deeds to their property i promise that i will never sell this property to name your uh, to a black or uh, to somebody of the negro race to somebody of the um jewish faith uh, to somebody from uh the who's oriental and just name it and uh they would phrase it like that well Finally, the United States Supreme Court said, you put your uh, restrictions uh, in your deeds, run them with the land as much as you want, but don't come crying to the court. We're not going to enforce them anymore. And by the early 70s, neighborhoods were actually starting to get integrated, and there was a lot of unrest as a result of that.
1: Well, that's why I find it interesting, because you say neighborhoods were integrated, schools were integrated, yet still in movies, the portrayal of neighborhoods was oftentimes all white neighborhoods. You say in movies like E.T., Raging Bull, Terms of Endearment, all white suburban schools in movies like E.T., again, Ordinary People, Fast Times at Richmond High. So these movies were not an accurate portrayal of what was really going on. And why is that? They
2: were not an accurate portrayal. I mean, you're too young to remember, but I remember. I mean, we had people of different colors living next door to each other throughout the 80s, at least where I, wherever I lived. That's the way it was.
1: So then why wasn't it like that in movies? Uh,
2: well, well, I think that uh, even in the movie—what uh, was that movie um, with Mel Gibson where he lethal was— Lethal Weapon? Lethal Weapon— uh, they have a—the the detective is the—the the black detective is the normal guy, and the white detective is the abnormal, twisted guy. They had the uh, black detective—they had to make sure that there were blacks shown— jogging in his neighborhood to make sure that they gave the impression that this, even though it was a lovely home that the black detective lived in, that this was a black neighborhood and Hollywood was not giving the message that we had integrated neighborhoods. I Somehow it didn't, Hollywood didn't seem to want to upset people by uh, changing the, they were back in the 50s mentality of let's not uh,
1: try to challenge American values in any way. And even more upsetting than showing neighborhoods and schools as all white is even just the portrayal of a black individual in these movies. You know, I I never really thought about it until you laid out all the data in your book. But in a lot of these movies, the black character is a criminal. I mean, even in Ghost, Whoopi Goldberg is a con artist with a long criminal record. In um, The Sting, they're thieves. In Network, they're black terrorists. In Cooley High, they're charged with grand theft auto. And this is at a time where the court was really trying to make strides in ensuring that uh, there was equal opportunity in employment as well. And there was. There was. The normal scenario was a black employed homeowner with a family. Yet in so many of these movies, their criminals are doing criminal-like behavior. Talk about how in Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy steals robes from the hotel. So why is that? The
2: it, Beverly Hills Cop was particularly annoying. Finally, you had a black actor who was going to be the star in a movie. And it's not only the stealing the robes, it's um, the the white cops in Beverly Hills Cop w- dressed in sports jackets and nice slacks and a tie, and Eddie Murphy who 's also a police officer, so presumably and there 's no family around that you see, so presumably he 's making the kind of money the police officers make, which was a, which is a decent salary he's dresses like a slob throughout it, and he 's got a total potty mouth throughout it, whereas the white officers uh, speak in gentlemanly kinds of uh, civil language why they had to make him so low life when they had this chance to show him as a decent person, and he was—he was a good police officer. Uh, the as I—I I was reading one book about it. I think it was a Thomas Cripps book, and they said that St- Sylvester Stallone was originally supposed to play uh, that role, hmm. and St- Sylvester Stallone was supposed to be his uh Lisa Eilbacher I think was the female lead in that and there was supposed to be some kind of a romance but once Eddie Murphy got the role then that was the end of the romance there could not possibly be a romance between a black man and a white woman so they were buddies throughout that and then they there it was really kind of unexplained they had knew each other from way back when and they were pals and, and buddies, and then. And what's
1: strange with that, though, is isn't that about twenty years after Loving versus Virginia and deciding to end um, to allow interracial marriages? Yet twenty years later, in Beverly Hills Cop, they still are unwilling in Hollywood to show an interracial relationship.
2: Yes, even at the very slightest level of even I mean, a kiss. Not, not, not even a hint of romance. But at the end of Beverly Hills Cop uh and it probably went over i had seen that movie before and it's definitely went over my head it, it's as though hollywood was on a bent to make sure it gave the message that blacks are thieves so at the end of beverly hills cop they're checking uh, he's checking out of the his hotel in beverly hills and he asks the white cop do you want a robe one of those terry cloth robes from the and uh the white cop says no and uh, or he says, thank you. Thank you very much. And he says, no, you keep it. You, you probably want it. And he said, no, I got three in my suitcase. And uh, he says that secretively. And it's obvious that he stole the, the robes. Why they have to give that message, I don't know. But it, I think it was to give whites comfort that uh, you are superior, to keep them coming back into the movies because it made them feel good to uh, feel superior.
1: Yeah. And Stephen, I'm going to need you to help me with the name of this one. But even in the movie with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, where they switch lives,
2: trading places,
1: trading places. Thank you. uh, Eddie Murphy at the beginning of the film is shown again as a homeless criminal. And then only because there's this scheme by these older white banking men, is he able to enjoy this life of luxury and privilege. So it's, it's just interesting to me, you know, I never really thought about the movies this way until uh, until reading your book and seeing the data kind of laid out. Like, you know those me- messages are there, but they're subliminal in a way, so you're not really noticing it. Were you surprised when researching by how, how blatant it really was?
2: Not only was I surprised, I was pre- borderline furious. Uh, there's a movie, I had read the book... Um, The book was kind of Japanese bashing, actually, but the book was, it's called Rising Sun. And when they made that into a movie, the book, I don't think there's even any description of what the race is of the two detectives, but it's just assumed that they are two L.A. detectives and they're white. In the movie, they make one of them black, and it's Wesley Snipes. So they put into the movie a scene that is not in the book at all. It's totally unnecessary to the plot it doesn't extend the plot in any way the only reason that they must have had this in the movie was okay we have a nice well-dressed good-looking black detective in this movie but we can't let it rest there we have to show that blacks are mainly uh criminals so they have this chase scene in uh south central Los Angeles where there's a bunch of black hoodlums that uh take part and scare the bejesus out of uh some people who are get some Japanese that are chasing the detectives.
1: And now I, I know I'm going back a few decades here, but you talk about at the beginning of the book in your own experiences growing up. You mentioned in nineteen four in Philadelphia, you in a Philadelphia suburb, you lived in an all white neighborhood and you remember your parents, uh, that a black family offered to buy your family home and that your parents, basically said, we can't do that to our neighborhood because the property values will go down and held out for nine months until a white family came around to purchase the home. You tell another story about your mother sitting at a diner counter and a black man coming to sit next to her and they refused service to him and she felt shame. So in researching this book and looking back at your family's experiences, could you understand it a little bit more?
2: I I think I can. Not that I agree with it, but I think I can understand what was happening. W.E.B. Du Bois, the black intellectual, wrote a book, and I think it was published in 1903, called The Souls of Black Folk. And he talked about what happens to a society when the races cannot sit down and uh, have a cup of tea together or look each other in the eyes, when there's total and complete separation. And I think that was still going... I mean, what happened in 1954 when my parents had that home for sale? 5712 North Lambert Street in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, and and most of it, I, re- I really don't remember. I, it's just afterwards when I heard family stories and everything, I can put together, piece together what happened. And they were... My father w- had two full-time jobs always and one uh, part-time job most of the time. And they had... They sold the house on Lambert Street and they bought a house in Roxborough, which is another section of Philadelphia. But that that sale fell through. But they they were then on the hook for two mortgages. And the next buyer to come along was a um, a black family. And if they sold the house to the black family, that would be the first black family in. A three or four block radius. And that meant an, an, a, an immediate decrease in home values. And my father saw that as his moral duty not to do that to his neighbors, to decrease the values of their home. And he hung on for nine months until a white family, another white family, made an offer on the house.
1: And so now looking back at that, having done your research... And seeing the climate then and the way that African Americans were portrayed in film and just starting to change in the Supreme Court, do you see where that came from in the 50s? Well, I think
2: my parents knew and and nobody, no other whites that we knew, knew anything about blacks. We didn't, I, I was so tiny at the time, but nobody worked with blacks, nobody Uh, When you went to the grocery store, you didn't see any blacks. When you went to the dry cleaners, you didn't see any blacks. When you got on the bus, you didn't see any blacks because they weren't in your neighborhood. So there was a total lack of intermingling. And when there's intermingling, when you see somebody and you wave to them across the street or you you're use, apologize because your grocery cart hit theirs. That kind of interaction is what makes society normal. When it is so so totally and artificially abnormal, it's impossible to sympathize, or not impossible, but it's difficult to sympathize and empathize with with each other.
1: And when you are separated and you aren't seeing African Americans as you walk down the street in schools, in neighborhoods, in restaurants, movie theaters, the only portrayal you have of them is on the big screen Hollywood was a massive institution at that time and so you know it's interesting when they were portraying blacks as uneducated as criminals that kind of shapes their view of things and it was sad to me you know reading through your book how even after the 50s even after the court and people and neighborhoods really tried to work towards integration you know through the 70s and 80s you talk about how still um There was this negative portrayal of African-Americans in film. I don't want to end this on a bad note because in the last decade, in the 2000s, you don't really see that as much. I mean, in Crash, in that film, everyone had um, views about different people. Everyone was equal in their racist views, in their, you know views uh, of people in Million Dollar Baby. In a lot of these movies, uh, you talk about how we are finally on equal footing. So do you think that Hollywood, we're past that stage of black bashing and putting African Americans down? Or are are we done with that? Is Hollywood done with that?
2: Uh, Cross your fingers. I hope so. Because the movies that I've seen, even since my book has come out, uh, precious, I think I did get the get precious in the book but that's fairly recent and I saw a movie last Sunday called 12 Years a Slave Mm -hmm. and when you compare uh and the butler when you compare 12 Years a Slave with what uh, was in that movie The Patriot in 2000 the the difference is is so great because in The Patriot in the the Patriot is absolutely disgusting. There, there probably was not a free black in South Carolina in the colony in 1776. Yet the Patriot has to make a point when the English colonel comes up and says, "The King George will grant you your freedom if you fight for the Crown." The black uh, uh, plantation worker looks up and says, "We're free men, sir." Now. Give me a break. There were no free men in South Carolina. I mean, if there were, they certainly weren't on the plantation of the character that uh, Mel Gibson was was supposedly portraying, the Swamp Fox. Uh, he was known to uh, rape his female slaves. But current Hollywood seems to be uh, much more realistic in their portrayal of what blacks. Went through in history, rather than trying to revise history. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I could go along for another hour talking about how Hollywood try, did actually try to revise history and misled the American uh, people into thinking that things weren't nearly as bad for them, for blacks as they as as, as it actually was in America.
1: And now in the Butler in Twelve Years a Slave. It's hard to watch those movies. Things are so terrible, yet that's what really went on. And so now Hollywood is – and also it's it's the directors and the people who are behind the film. Um, I, th- I think that has something to do with it. The people who are writing the film and directing the films, they are African-American, so why would they ever give in to – portraying it anything other than what it was, his, you know, historically.
2: I absolutely agree. And before we stop, I want to say one word about TV news. Because in the 1960s, had it not been for television news showing little black kids being attacked by uh, fire hoses and German shepherds, I I don't know if America ever would have found out the truth. They definitely wouldn't have found it out from Hollywood any time uh, close to the 1960s.
1: Well... That's why, you know, I'm glad you wrote this book. It's really interesting. I really do uh, encourage people who are interested in the subject matter to check it out. It's available online and in stores everywhere. It has won several awards, the Gold Book of the Year Award from Forward, the Bronze Medal Book of the Year Award from Independent Publisher, and even more awards than that. So I do encourage people to check it out because, like I said, it, it was a surprising result to see that... uh you know, so many times there's a lot of criticism of the Supreme Court in how they have prolonged things and are slow to change. Yet you find in this book, Hollywood was actually the one that was prolonging racism. So I think it's a really interesting read and an important read. Um, And Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If anyone wants to reach out, ask any more questions about their book, is there a place they can find you at?
2: Uh, why don't they contact Cool Titles there's a website I, do, I don't know the website off the top of my head but if you google cool, t- cool Titles
1: perfect or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Mari Fagel or on Facebook uh, give, you, give me your comments your questions on this book and thank you so much Eileen for joining us we will be back next week with Ebony thank you
0: from producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergar, Phil Spitek Dario Christen and the entire BHL staff we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.